invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4. Uh, I do want to say happy Mother's Day to all the mothers with us this morning. Uh, It's great to see everyone here. And uh, we're going to be starting this morning a new series uh, as we look at Luke chapter 11. It's actually a two-week series on prayer entitled Jesus on Prayer. Okay, And so this morning uh, we'll look at verses 1 through 4. And then, Lord willing, next week uh, we'll look at verses 5 through 13. But I'll begin this morning by reading verses 1 through 4 for us, okay? So Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are a God who provides. And Lord, we look to you now for these moments. We look to you to provide for us. Help us, Lord, in this time as we come to your word. Lord, we pray that we would have understanding and insight into your word. And we pray, Father, that your word would not fall on deaf ears or hard hearts. But Lord, we pray that in your provision, you would give us not only understanding, but Lord, you would give us hearts to receive your word, that we might be changed by it, that we might truly become increasingly a people of prayer for your glory. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this last semester of home groups, we spent the entire semester considering the subject of prayer. And we did that by looking at D.A. Carson's book entitled Praying with Paul. Uh, It's a really helpful book as Carson took us through each of Paul's prayers in the New Testament, pointing us to those prayers, the content of those prayers, and teaching us how to pray as Paul prayed. And so we just did that. We just finished up that series in our home groups. And now what we're going to do is we're going to start or embark on this two-week series on Jesus teaching us about prayer. Now, if Paul has much to teach us about prayer, and he does, Jesus has a lot to teach us about prayer, right? And so that's why we're turning to Jesus now to learn what it means to pray, how we should pray. Now, one of the reasons why we've been focusing on the Bible's teaching on prayer as a church body over the last several months is because we have entered into a season as a church where we especially feel our need to go to God in prayer. As many of you know, for some time we have acknowledged our need as a church to expand our facilities, to accommodate the growth that we've experienced and Uh, hoping that God continues uh, to bless our church body to provide for more space as God continues to lead folks our way. And over the last several months, we've been in discussions with Crawford Avenue Baptist Church, which is a church downtown about a possible merger. As we have gone into this season where we're praying about God providing for us as a church and giving us more facilities so that we can continue to grow the ministry here at Berea, Uh, We've called for several seasons of fasting and prayer. 
Some of you will remember this. Last summer, we called for a season of fasting and prayer. This last February, for the month of February, we called for a season of fasting and prayer. And I just want to acknowledge this morning that as we've been seeking the Lord in prayer together as a congregation, that God has been so good to us. Through this process, and as we've been considering these things and praying about these things, one thing we can be thankful for is that the Lord has just blessed us as a church body with a real sweet sense of unity and oneness. We can also be thankful that as we've been seeking the Lord in prayer about these matters, that the Lord has opened up this opportunity with Crawford Avenue. And then as we've been going through this process, the Lord has blessed our relationship with Crawford Avenue so that um, the relationships with their leaders and the relationships with the members there at Crawford Avenue have been blessed and have been encouraging relationships. So in all these ways, we can be thankful Now, as some of you know, soon, Lord willing, we're going to be entering into a new stage in this process in which we'll be putting together a merger document. And this will be the point in the process in which we start getting down into the nitty-gritty of kind of what would it actually look like if our churches merged together? How would that all play itself out? And so I feel again, and I hope that you do as well, our need as a church body to pray To go to the Lord again and to seek Him in prayer, in dependence upon Him, asking for His blessing and for His guidance. What we're going to do, actually, and there'll be more information about this coming in the weeks uh, ahead, is we're going to call again for a season of fasting and prayer in the month of June and July as we work through this process of putting together a merger document. Now, with that in mind, what I want us to look at this morning is what Jesus has to teach us about prayer. And given given where we're at as as a church and what God's doing in our lives as a church body and given our need to pray, I want us to look at this text, just these few short verses this morning, and to consider four things that Jesus teaches us about prayer. This will serve as our outline this morning. First of all, we'll see Jesus in the life of prayer. Secondly, we'll see Jesus in the who of prayer. Third, we'll see Jesus in the content of prayer. And then fourth, Jesus in the goal of prayer. Okay, so that's the outline. If you're taking notes, life of prayer, the who of prayer, the content of prayer, the goal of prayer. First of all, look at verses 1 and 2, and we see Jesus in the life of prayer. We read in chapter 11, verse 1, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Now, right off the bat, we need to acknowledge that as we look at the Gospel of Luke, it is abundantly clear that Jesus lived a life of prayer. That Jesus was a man who was devoted to prayer. We see in Luke chapter 3 that Jesus was praying when at his baptism the Holy Spirit came upon him. Or in Luke chapter 4, we see that before Jesus launched His public ministry, He spent 40 days and 40 nights fasting and praying. We see in Luke chapter 6 that Jesus spent all night in prayer before He chose His 12 disciples. Pointing us to the reality that before we make large and significant decisions like that, we should seek God in prayer, right? In Luke chapter 9, it was after a time of prayer that Jesus asked Peter that ultimate question, Peter, who do people say that I am? And Peter, who do you say that I am? It's in Luke chapter 9 that Jesus took Peter and James and John up on a mountain to pray. 
It was in Luke 22 that when Jesus faced the greatest crisis of his life before going to the cross, we see that Jesus is on his face in the Garden of Gethsemane, agonizing with his Father in prayer. It's also in that same chapter in Luke 22 that with love and compassion, Jesus prays that in Peter's moment of weakness, Peter would not shipwreck his faith. So over and over and over again, we see in Luke's gospel that Jesus is a man who was devoted to, who gave himself to prayer and to seeking his Father in prayer. And that's important for us to note because it is in this context, it's in this context of the disciples observing this life of prayer, witnessing Jesus seek the Father in prayer, that they then ask Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. You see, otherwise they would not have asked that question. They are observing that Jesus Himself is given to prayer, and they rightly deduce from that that Christian discipleship, a vital part of Christian discipleship, is to know how to pray and then to actually pray. And so they ask Him, Lord, teach us to pray. Now this is one of the reasons why we as a church devote sermon series to the subject of prayer. And why periodically we'll devote an entire semester to considering the subject of prayer. And why sometimes we call as a church body for seasons of fasting and prayer. And we want to grow as a church body in prayer. Because one of the primary ways in which we as Christ's disciples come to know God and experience His power in our lives is through prayer. With that in mind, I wonder, if you're a Christian this morning... Consider this. As you think about the dynamics of what's happening here, Jesus is praying. The disciples are witnessing this, observing this. Naturally, then they ask Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. Considering what's happening here, ask yourself, do you believe that based on your prayer life, anyone, whether it's your spouse, your children, a friend, anyone would say to you, please teach me to pray. I mean, by observing your prayer life and the way that you seek God in prayer, would anyone be inclined to say, you know, when do you pray? How do you pray? What are the things that you struggle with in prayer? What are the things that you've learned about prayer? What are the things that have been helpful to you in prayer? Would anyone come to you and ask you, please teach me to pray? We learn from the example of Jesus here that if we are to teach others to pray, and if we are to lead others to pray, then we ourselves must pray. In addition to that, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, I would just ask you, do you pray? Most people would say that they do, right? Or at least they have at some point. I mean, whether you believe it works or not, everyone, or I would probably say almost everyone, has prayed, at least in a moment of crisis, thinking, well, it couldn't hurt, right? And if you have engaged in prayer at a previous time or maybe even now, let me ask you this question. Do you know how to pray? I imagine that many people would say, well, I've done it before, but I don't really know how to do it. I never really considered that there's, a, there's an actual, there's a proper way to pray. There's an appropriate way to approach God in prayer. Well, if that fits you this morning, then consider this. I have encouraging words for you this morning. In fact, this is really amazing. It's quite remarkable. This morning, as we walk through these verses, you have the opportunity to learn from Jesus Himself how to pray. 
Isn't that amazing? I would encourage you to listen attentively and to pray and to ask God, just as the disciples asked Jesus that day, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach me to pray. God loves to answer that prayer. Secondly, we see Jesus in the who of prayer. So Jesus' life of prayer, which compelled the disciples to ask, teach us to pray. And then secondly, let's consider Jesus in the who of prayer. Look there in verse 2 and we read these words. And Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father. Now, if we are going to pray, we need to know who we are addressing in prayer. And Jesus informs us here that when we pray, we are not praying to an impersonal robot who coldly operates the universe. An impersonal robot who is indifferent to our hurts and our pains and our needs and our concerns. But rather, when we come to God in prayer, we are praying to our Father. And this is a title, yes, of authority, and we should not deny that. But this is also a title of intimacy and affection and warmth. And so when Jesus instructs us as we go to God in prayer to address Him as Father, Jesus is calling us into the intimacy that He Himself as God's Son enjoys with God the Father. Think about that. God the Son, Jesus, enjoys unbroken Intimacy, warmth, affection, companionship, fellowship with God the Father. And as God the Son says to us, when you go to God in prayer, say, Father, He is inviting us into that relationship. Because through faith in Jesus, in faith in God's Son, we are adopted into the family of God. As adopted sons and daughters with all the rights and privileges of a son. I know that there are some here this morning who may not have experienced the blessing of an earthly father who was loving and faithful. And so as you read here, when you pray, say, Father, that may not, in fact, invoke within you feelings of warmth or affection or faithfulness. But understand, my friends, that despite all the failings of your earthly father, it is undeniable what Jesus wants you to understand here in calling you to address God as Father. Jesus wants you to understand that this Father is a good Father. This Father is always good, and He will always do what is best for you. He is always loving. He is always faithful. You can always trust Him. In fact, we'll see this even more so next week as you skip down to verses 11 to 13. Listen to what Jesus says. Now, this is the reason why He calls us to address God as Father. Look at verse 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If then you who are evil even know how to give good gifts to your children, How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? You see, Jesus wants us to know that this Father is remarkably good, better than any earthly father you could ever imagine. And so Jesus says, when you go to God, pray, Father. And listen, it's so important that you get this because if you don't get this, you won't go to Him. 
If you don't believe He's good, if you don't believe He's faithful, if you don't believe He's loving, if you don't believe that He longs to do you good, you won't go to Him. And if you don't go to Him, you may know many facts about God, but you will never know Him as Father. Not only, though, does Jesus teach us who it is that we are to go to in prayer, who we're to address in prayer, but He also teaches us here with whom we should pray. Now, we have to go down a little bit further in the passage to see this. But if you go down to verse 3, notice the pronouns here in these requests, okay? He says, give us, there it is, give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins and lead us not into temptation. Now, it's worth noting here that all of these requests that Jesus Uh, tells us to bring before the Father, all of them are framed with, um, in the plural, us, right? Our, not me and I. They're not in the singular. And one of the things that we can take away from this is that Jesus is teaching His disciples that when we pray, we should pray with our fellow disciples. We should pray with the community of faith. We should pray with the church. Now, undoubtedly, we should go to God in prayer individually and by ourselves, but it is also very clear from Scripture and very clear from Jesus' teaching here that prayer is to be engaged in within the context of the community of faith. This prayer is not just for our personal devotions. This prayer is not just for our individual prayer time, but rather Jesus has specifically designed this prayer so that it is to be voiced with other Christians and with other Christians in mind. And so as we think about our prayer lives, not only is it important to know who we are addressing, that we are coming before God the Father, but also I hope, my friends, that our prayer lives are rightly situated in the context of community that we are learning about prayer with others, that we are praying for others, that we are praying with others. So as we think about the who of prayer, Jesus instructs us and teaches us here in these verses that we are to go to God the Father and we are to pray with one another. The third point I want us to see here in our passage is Jesus in the content of prayer. So Jesus in the life of prayer, Jesus in the who of prayer, and then Jesus in the content of prayer. Look there in verses 2 through 4. We read these words. And He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Now, this is actually a well-known passage of Scripture. I imagine that uh, many in the room this morning are familiar with this passage of Scripture. It's known as the Lord's Prayer. There's actually a parallel version of the prayer in Matthew chapter 6. There are some slight variations. The Matthew 6 passage has um, some more content to the prayer. It's possible that Jesus used this prayer in slight variations on a number of different occasions, and that would... Um, That would give reason for the differences, but they're essentially the same. There are two extremes, though, as when it comes to uh, how Christians interact with or relate to the Lord's Prayer. On the one hand, there are certain Christians who treat the Lord's Prayer kind of like it's magic, you know. 
Um, so maybe they formed a habit of mindlessly reciting the Lord's Prayer over and over again with little thought to the words or the meaning of the prayer. And in some sense, they kind of treat the Lord's Prayer like it's a magic spell. You know, it doesn't really matter what it says or what it means. It just matters that you say it. And if you say it kind of like a magic spell, then good things will happen. Well, that's not what Jesus is teaching or instructing us to do here. But on the other hand, that's one extreme. On the other hand, and perhaps it's in uh, response to this extreme here, on the other hand, people might say, well, you know, prayer is to be personal. Prayer is to be from the heart. It's to be spontaneous. So there's a kind of a rejection of any sense that a prayer would be written out or well thought out or, um, or recited and all previously prepared and recited. Everything should just be spontaneous and kind of come from our hearts in the moment. And so, folks in this camp might never really give any serious thought to the Lord's Prayer. And they might never use it in corporate worship as we voice our prayers together by reciting this prayer. They may never actually voice this prayer in their own personal lives to God because they think, no, prayer should always only be spontaneous. But that's not good either. Rather, we see in these verses that the Lord has given this prayer to us for our instruction and for our good. And when this prayer is prayed thoughtfully and when it is prayed sincerely, God is honored by this prayer. And the Lord loves to answer this prayer. Furthermore, it's important to point out as well that even beyond using the exact words of this prayer, Jesus is teaching us that all our prayers should be marked by the spirit and the essence of this prayer. So, so it could be voiced in a whole different array of ways. But the essence, the substance of this prayer, of this short prayer, should be contained in our request and uh, prayers before God. Now with that in mind, as we look at the prayer in more detail, we notice that there are five petitions or requests in the prayer. And I want us to walk through them now as we're considering the content of the prayer. And we're just going to hit each one very quickly. The first request is found there in verse 2. Jesus instructs us to pray, Father, hallowed be your name. Now the word hallowed means to reverence, to honor, to praise. And so the idea here is that God's, so, so the disciples are to come before God and they are to pray that His name would be worshipped, that His name would be glorified, that His name would be made much of. And notice right away as Jesus is instructing us about prayer, notice how counterintuitive this is. You know, naturally, if we think naturally about the way we approach prayer, we think in our natural state that prayer is about getting stuff for ourselves, right? Prayer is about what we need and about getting what we want. But Jesus teaches us here that before we are to ask for our needs, our first desire is to be that God would be glorified. One Christian author has stated it this way, quote, The first activity of prayer is not that of getting something for ourselves, but of getting something for God. This is the first realm in which prayer is to operate, praying to God on behalf of God, end of quote. You know, this is one of the many reasons why we need to be taught by Jesus how to pray, because naturally, we would not start here, right? We, th- we tend to think of prayer only in personal terms, and we don't necessarily state it this way, we don't necessarily consciously think about it this way, but really, underneath our prayers is this sense of, hallowed be my name, right? Right? 
May I get what I want. May I be made much of. May my desires be fulfilled. And Jesus is teaching us here right off the bat that prayer is not finally about us, but it is about God. And here's the secret. Prayer is actually far more thrilling and far more satisfying when it is motivated by the great and glorious purposes of God rather than when it is motivated by our small and narrow preoccupation with ourselves. Jesus is calling us into something far greater. The second request is your kingdom come. So, hallowed be your name. Then the second request, your kingdom come. Now, we know from Scripture that God's kingdom is His redemptive rule and reign. And so, when God's kingdom comes, this is what happens. His redemptive rule and reign is invading the world. It's coming into the world. And, and, and these are the types of things that happens. When God's kingdom comes, lives are changed. Hearts are redeemed. Relationships are restored. People are helped. When God's kingdom comes, we taste something more of what God created the world to be and what He will ultimately make it. And we see this in the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus says that in His coming, the kingdom has come. He says, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. And people are being forgiven for their sins. And people are being healed. And people are being helped. You see, Jesus, in the person of Jesus, the redemptive power of God's kingdom is entering the world. And again, this is why we need to be taught by Jesus how to pray. Our natural tendency is to pray for my kingdom to come. But we learn from Jesus that the coming of His kingdom is far greater than the coming of our own kingdom. And so when I pray with His kingdom in mind and not my kingdom in mind, my prayers then are not consumed with my desires for a nice job or my desires for an easy and safe life or my desire for everyone to like me and make a name for myself. But when I pray for God's kingdom to come, my kingdom begins to fade in the light of the glory and the surpassing beauty of the coming kingdom of God. So Jesus begins by teaching us to pray that God's name would be hallowed, that it would be made much of, that we would pray that God's kingdom would come. And then the third request, you see it there in verse 3, is give us each day our daily bread. So now we are moving from, we begin by praying for God's glory and God's kingdom, and now we begin to move towards our everyday needs and requests that we might bring before God as it relates to our own particular situation and circumstances. And this prayer here, give us each day our daily bread, reminds us of God's provision for Israel in the wilderness. Many of you know this account as Israel was delivered from Egypt. They went into a period of uh, wilderness wandering, and for some time they were dependent upon God, even on a daily basis, for God to provide them with food and with water. We read about this in Exodus chapter 16, verse 4. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. And the emphasis here, this is when God provided for the people of Israel manna in the wilderness, which was a form of bread. And the emphasis here was on the fact that the people were to collect this bread on a daily basis. Not more than they needed, not less than they needed. They were to, prov they were to collect what they needed for the day. 
And God would provide for them day by day by day. You know, we prefer, in contrast to this, we prefer to have all the provision we'll ever need now, right? That's what we prefer. We want, and this applies to every area of life. Just start to think about it. Think about money or finances, right? We want enough money right now so that we can retire early, right? Retire when we're 30 years old or something like that, right? But typically, what does God do? God gives us just enough to meet our daily needs. Or you think about this as it relates to school. I know we have a number of uh, college students and grad students here at Berea, and you get the syllabus, you know, at the beginning of the semester, all the assignments that you have to do, and uh, we used to call it syllabus shock, and you know, you're kind of overwhelmed by everything that has to be done for the semester, and how am I going to get all this done? And, and some people might have in their minds, you know, I'm going to get all this done in the first two or three weeks, so then I won't have to worry about school anymore. Well, my experience was, maybe you're a much better student than I was, but my experience was God provided just enough time, just enough energy to get the assignments done when they were due. Or you think about it in terms of guidance. You know, we, maybe you're considering taking a job or maybe you're considering moving uh, somewhere. And, and, and so as you pray and as you seek God, you want God to give you like the five or ten year plan with all the details, right? All the nitty gritty details of how everything's going to work out. But God typically does not work that way, right? Instead, God gives us just enough light to take the next step. And then He calls us to trust Him. You see, the danger in in wanting all of it now is that we would begin to live life. We would be deceived into thinking that we could live life without God. That we could do it on our own. And God calls us into a life and into a relationship in which we are called to depend upon Him daily, moment by moment, to experience fellowship with Him and casting ourselves upon Him. The fourth request is to forgive us our sins. So hallowed be Your name, Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And verse 4 Forgive us our sins. He says there, Jesus says, And forgive us our sins, for we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now, I will just say, I love the fact that Jesus includes this in the prayer that He is giving us. He's saying, pray like this, and He includes this in the prayer, right? This is the prayer we should pray, and He includes this. Forgive us our sins. Because you see, in Jesus instructing us to pray to the Father in this way, Jesus is assuming that God hears the prayers of sinners. Isn't that beautiful? Perhaps you've heard, and the Bible does teach this, that if we are committed to ongoing, unrepentant sin in our lives, it can hinder our prayer lives. And that is true. But it is also true, and abundantly true, and abundantly clear from the New Testament and from the teaching of Jesus here that prayer is for sinners. And that is good news. Jesus assumes here that the person who would be voicing this prayer, that the community of faith that would be coming before God with this prayer, is in need of God's grace and forgiveness. And Jesus assumes that if they come to God and they ask Him for that grace and they ask Him for that forgiveness, that He will be delighted to share it and to grant their request. It's a beautiful invitation. 
We also see from what Jesus says here that this also has implications, though, not only for our relationship with God, that we come to a God who welcomes sinners and forgives sinners, but it also has implications for how we relate to one another. We see here that since we have been forgiven in the gospel, we ourselves are to forgive others. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. The Apostle Paul stated it this way in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. As God in Christ forgave you. And think about it for a moment. How did God in Christ forgive us? Well, it was substitutionary. That's kind of a big word, but basically what that means is that Jesus served as our substitute. At the cross, when Jesus died at the cross, He took the guilt, He took the pain, He took the penalty for our sin so that we could be forgiven and set free. And we learn at the cross that all forgiveness in one sense is substitutionary. When we forgive, at one level we are saying to another that we will absorb the pain of their sin so that they might be forgiven and they might be set free. There's always a cost in forgiveness. The gospel, though, we see here from this prayer, the gospel creates a community in which people are aware of their need for God's grace and forgiveness in their own lives, so they pray, Father, forgive us our sins. But having received that forgiveness and received that mercy, then they are eager and expectant to share it with others. And this applies to every relationship in the community of faith. If you are married, it, it applies to your spouse. Do you know if you are married, your spouse needs grace? They need mercy. And you do too. And if you don't forgive in your marriage, it won't last long. Not only does it apply to our marriages, it also applies to our children, right? That we, having received the grace of God, as a father relates to a son, so now we would extend grace to our children and forgive them. It extends to the brother or sister in Christ who has disappointed us or hurt us. It extends as well as we think about the community of faith. It extends to those who might be characterized as social misfits or outcasts. That we would be a people who, although we were rebel rebellious against God, although we were estranged from God, although we were cast away from God, and now by His grace have been brought in, have been brought near, that we would be eager to share that grace with others. The gospel creates a community that is marked by grace. And as this community is marked by grace, these words are on the lips of those who make up that community. This prayer is on the lips of those who make up this community. Father, forgive us our sins because if you, as you have extended your forgiveness to us, we extend that forgiveness to others. The final request there you see in verse 4. And lead us not into temptation. So hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, and then lead us not into temptation. Though Christians are forgiven, we know that Christians are far from perfect. Having said that, being forgiven, we should never, we should never be content or careless or indifferent to the peril and danger of sin. 
We know that sin is our greatest enemy as Christians, and so we are utterly dependent upon God's grace and upon God's power so that sin will not wreck our lives, so that sin will not steal our joy, so that sin will not render us powerless in Christ's mission. And so the prayer of the Christian and the prayer of the community of of Christ's disciples is that God would help us, that He would strengthen us, that He would protect us from overwhelming temptation and sin that would threaten our spiritual lives. So these are the requests. Hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. And lead us not into temptation. Now, Fourth and finally, Jesus and the goal of prayer. So the, we've looked at the life of prayer, the who of prayer, the content of prayer, and then finally, Jesus and the goal of prayer. As we looked at the various parts of this prayer, going through each request, now I want us just to step back for a moment and look at the big picture of the prayer. And, and the question I want us to ask here is, what is the ultimate goal of this prayer? And I believe John Piper rightly points out that all the various requests and petitions in this prayer all serve the first request, which is there in verse 2, right? Father, hallowed be your name. Now, now think about this. This makes sense. As we pray the other request, your kingdom come, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, lead us not into temptation, All of these requests, if you think about it, if God were to fulfill them, so if God were to answer our prayers, if He were to to be so good as to give us what we are requesting in each one of these petitions, if His kingdom were to come in and through us so that other lives are impacted for the gospel, if He were to provide for us in our daily needs, if He were to forgive us of our sins, and if He were to protect us spiritually and allow us to grow and thrive spiritually, then what would be the end result? God would be glorified. God would be hallowed. God would be made much of. God would be shown to be good and powerful and glorious and gracious and kind. You see, all of the other requests serve this one great request that God would be glorified. You know, this is the mission of our church to glorify God by enjoying, living, and proclaiming the gospel. And so all we want to do as a church, all all that we do, all the activities we are involved in, all the ways that we relate to each other, we pray that in the midst of that, God would be glorified. And this applies to all our prayers. This applies to all that we do. So even as we think about the possibility of this merger, whether it happens or it does not happen, we pray ultimately that God would be glorified. When it comes to the forgiveness of sins that we call out for in our spiritual growth, whether it comes to physical provision that we need on a daily basis or the coming of God's kingdom in and through of us, all of this we ask and we seek God for, not finally so we can make a name for ourselves, but so that we can make a name for God, so that God's name would be hallowed, so that He would be worshipped and praised. Now that is... I mean, if you think about it for a moment, that is revolutionary. Nobody prays like that naturally. Consider that. Nobody prays like that naturally. And you will only pray like that if you sit at the feet of Jesus and learn to pray from Him. 
don't try to pray on your own. You will mess it all up. And I mean it. You will make a muck of the whole thing. Your prayers will devolve into pettiness. But if you sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from Him to pray, He will open your eyes and expand your mind and your heart so that prayer becomes all the glorious things it should be. And God does amazing things in your life and through your life. Let us go to Jesus and learn to pray. It will be far more satisfying and glorious. Let's pray now.